you could not make it out Friday night or yesterday morning uh, to check out Brantford's website, I'm not sure how soon it will be on there, but keep checking. Um, the, the messages we heard Friday night and Saturday morning, um, the feedback I've been hearing is that it was very encouraging, uh, very practical, uh, especially one of them yesterday, we looked at social media video games and the gospel. Okay? It was good, right, Ed? It was good. So, all right, so if you're curious about that, check it out. Check it out. But really what we've been looking at this weekend is um, understanding the Christian home and shaping the national conscience. And so we've been blessed to have Rod with us this weekend. And I uh, just want to tell you to pray for him and his family. Carrie is his wife, and Amon and Doria. It's been nice to have Doria with us this weekend. Uh, pray for them. They're down in Atlanta, Georgia. Beginning on April 9th, they're going to be uh, beginning a new work. Gospel Hope. And uh, so he'll be ministering there. Uh, he also has a job as well. So it's very busy uh, for Rod. So I know they appreciate uh, your prayers. So uh, welcome our brother Rod. Rod, come on up. Are we green? Looks like we are green. All right. Well, good morning. Uh, Bradford, it is a pleasure to be here with you again and to share God's word with you this morning. Let us pray and then we will launch into the deep here. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you. Our hearts are compelled to give pause every time we soberly consider that when we bow our heads, it isn't just tradition, we aren't just lobbing words into, Lord God, vapor as some who just hope that there is a God on the other side. But we know that we speak to the Lord of heaven, the only wise God, the sovereign, the omnipotent one, the all-knowing God who understands our human plight, not only in terms of our sin and our propensity to, to death, and our need for redemption. But then you also understand, Lord God, even as you're sanctifying us, that we don't even know how to pray as we ought to. And therefore, Lord God, you give us your spirit. And by your spirit, Lord God, you intercede and you, you fill in the blanks because we don't even know what to ask for. Our understanding and our conscience, our perspective is limited, if not by sin itself, just by, Lord God, the, the frailty of our frame. And we thank you, Lord God, that you've not, you've not, You've not overlooked anything. You've considered all. Lord God, we could just pause here and just adore you on that simple fact of just how you built prayer. But Lord God, the, the, the business of the day is that you've asked your body to come together on the first day of the week and to be encouraged and to be taught and to be brought together in the unity of the knowledge of the Son. And so, Lord God, as we pause to do that, to obey you, we beg and ask it in keeping with what your word says in John 14, that if we would obey you, that you and the Son would come and make your abode with us. We beg, O oh God, that you would come now and make your home with us in this place, that we would explore your character and your nature for just a moment, and our hearts would be further blessed and confirmed in what we know about you. This we pray in the matchless and holy name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So over the last couple of days that we've been together, for those of you that maybe this is your first installment, uh, which will be the final installment on this series of those of you who will be listening online 
wherever you, you jump into the conversation. We're talking about the role of the Christian family in shaping the national conscience. And we started our conversation from the book of Colossians, uh, specifically considering what I've referred to as the five houses. You have the White House, which is the headquarters of administration nationally, the Supreme Court or the courthouse, which is the uh, administ- or the, the headquarters of uh, judicial administration. And when you talk about the national conscience, uh, you can see very much how both what happens in the White House, what happens in the courthouse, what happens in the schoolhouse, right, as you saw the appointment of a, uh, uh, um, uh, Betsy DeVos, right, over our, our education system, uh, and then you begin to move down and you see here uh, the Lord's house. We play a pivotal role, a, 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 an uber pivotal role in shaping the national conscience and whether or not uh, uh, our rights are curtailed and where we can share the gospel, where and when and how we pray. I mean, regardless of how a society evolves, the what the what and if you want to call it evolution or de-evolution, but no matter what's happening in a society, the church is always in the conversation and how we are handled or how we allow ourselves to be handled is very much. Uh, uh, an indication of what's happening nationally. Uh, when we look at what's happening, you know, across the pond, we see an entire society who their primary dilemma is what to do with these empty, beautiful buildings that used to be churches. They are becoming effectively museums. And so uh, the nation wants to know how do we, do we continue to keep the lights on? Do we pay for the beautiful ornamentation and to keep them clean and the ongoing janitorial service? Because there ain't no people in there. Because the national conscience toward the toward the church uh, uh, in Europe has become it is it is a it is a key part of our national history, but it is not a current part of our national conscience. And so, as we watch what happens in our country, we see more and more of that same kind of de-evolution in thought, trying to shove the church into a compartment where it is. Uh, not just a social club, but something even less significant, because at least social clubs are giving reg- regular public meeting spaces. But so we see ourselves, we, the Lord has given us, even within, uh, w- within our world, an opportunity to see where the church is headed unless there is some kind of intervention on his behalf. And I believe that God is, is uh, clear about the fact that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church. So its future is secure. And it won't be secure because some great preacher. It won't be secure because of uh, 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 fine seminaries. It'll be secure simply because the Lord guaranteed that. And so when we talk about shaping the national conscience, we have this conversation from a place of eternal confidence and not one that it derives from our flesh. But I do find it fascinating that the Lord has already given us a canvas to look at. Uh, as again, as we look at other societies that have decided to divorce itself from the church as a formidable part of its society and what they evolve to, or as I like to call it, to devolve to. And so what do we mean when we say, uh, when we talk about the role of the Christian family in shaping the national conscience? I talked about these five houses, the White House, the Supreme Court, or the courthouse, and then I talked about the Lord's house, and then I talked about the schoolhouse, and then, of course, on Saturday, we talked about our house, that is, our families. You see, what's going on is that we, as the Christian family, congregationally in the Lord's house, and we, as the nuclear family at our respective addresses where we keep our curics and our, and our, and our, and our other uh, things that we enjoy as a family, we are involved in a great game, a serious one, but a great game of show and tell. You see, the church tells the gospel, but the family shows it. 
And so we have this great balancing act of show and tell that's happening. And as we show the gospel in our families and as we tell it in our congregations, the Holy Spirit comes along and begins to shape the national conscience because it is the Holy Spirit that the Lord says it is his job to come in and to convict the world of sin. Not mine. Mine is to show the gospel, to share the gospel, depending on which podium I'm behind. If it's at my dinner table, I'm showing it as a husband and as a dad. If I'm behind this bad boy here, then I am sharing it as a preacher. And I'm out involved in various missionary exploits as a as a formal uh, member of the of the church family. So we're all involved in the great show and tell. But and as we're showing and sharing and telling the gospel, it is the Holy Spirit as a function of what he does to come in and to convict the world of its sin, to make it aware of its current state. Even if it won't share in and use the same labels that we do, even if they won't acknowledge all of the the principal characters like sin, death and the devil, because many people, depending on where their worldview are, don't like to contemplate those those kinds of terms. But they are undeniable. Sin, death and the devil are undeniable. Join me, if you will. Consider this. And and we're going somewhere. There's a text that we're going to take in just a moment. But I just want to set some backdrop when we talk about the national conscience. Consider that the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross comes to solve three principal problems that all of humanity struggles with, even if we don't use the same language. Functionally, it's there. When we talk about sin, death, and the devil, consider, if you will, that sin is obvious to even the atheist. Sin is obvious to even the atheist. Whether they use the word sin or not, the atheist understands or cannot understand how a three-year-old without being trained would slap their mom in the face and rip their earrings out of their ear during a church service. Without being told or formally instructed, knows how not to share. When the same three-year-old becomes 13, knows how to lie to parents without being professionally trained at any law school or any other institution. Oops, that was a joke. That was a joke. I don't have an issue with lawyers except those who make it their specialization to lie, and they're trained to do so. In some cases, depending on what side of the thing that they're on. Anyway, let's not overwork that. The the bottom line is, throughout our culture, there are people who for no good reason and no real reasonable gain do things that are just anti-ethical. We, we look at folks like the Enron executives, people who are as rich as rich can be, and bank CEOs who are as rich as rich can be, but still find room and reason to cheat others out of their resources. Where is the rationale? There's no science book that explains that. There is no sociological professor, no sociology professor, or no psychologist who can explain why the 30-year-old would choose to cheat on his taxes and open himself up to audits by the IRS when all he stands to gain by putting down undocumented or, or documenting illegitimate mileage is maybe another 300 bucks. But now he's going to open himself up to pay out potentially three or 4,000 if they go back and audit him for the next seven years. Where's the strategic gain in value? It doesn't even, sin doesn't even make sense. Even if you won't call it sin, human beings are broken. They have a propensity toward things that just don't make sense. Also, death. Entire industries are built around trying to beat death, right? Whether it be the diet pill, the treadmill, whether it be plastic surgery, people trying to outlive, outlast, do, do away with death. We know we can't get around it, so let's try to defy it. Let's do fun and fancy things and hang from the edges of buildings and show death. We're not afraid of you when effectively everything that we do demonstrates that we absolutely are because we know we can't avoid you. Death. 
Sin, death, and the devil. You might not call it that, but they're there. And of course, the devil. No one likes to think of a person who is officially responsible for evil and, it, and its promotion and campaigning it in the world. But the reality is, whether it is a Nero or an Adolf or some other character, the culture has always had some person who sits behind a seat. And when we as the world look at them, we may not be able to agree on objective moral truth, but the whole world can look out of its window and at its CNN and its, its Fox News and say, that person is officially bad. Regardless of my political ideation, that person right there is bad. Have you ever noticed that? We live in a society that won't agree on objective moral truth. But if you if you can locate a person who I mean, whoever is the leader of ISIS, he is not receiving any thank you notes from anyone. Even the people who follow him know that he's bad and that's why they follow him, because he's bad. It's a universal acknowledgement. And so even if you won't uh, 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 submit to the reality of a Satan, society cannot escape the fact that there are people who have seemingly an incredible amount of capacity, an incredible amount of power, an incredible amount of publicity, and they're able to wield it and have an incredible amount of negative impact on society. And culture has always had one of those. Now, I'm not suggesting that these people are the devil, but even in the absence of acknowledging a devil, we know that evil can have a highly concentrated personification. And that's exactly what Jesus comes to address on the cross is to gain victory over sin, death and the devil. So we know we know that when it comes to shaping the national conscience, that the family plays a foremost role, whether we're talking about this family, which is sharing the gospel or our home based families, which are showing the gospel. So this is what we mean by the role of the family in shaping the national conscience. So if you have your Bibles with me, would you turn with me in them to first John, first John, first John chapter four in this final installment uh, in this message series. First John chapter four. Before we get to our text of choice, first John's contribution to the Bible is probably best defined by this particular verse in chapter five, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the son of God. That is the whole purpose of the book of John. John wants to drive home that believers living in the world and that word world is mentioned 21 times in the book of John that we ought to know. And there's no, the only other vocabulary word that rivals the number of frequency and occurrences of the word world is the word no. John wants to make sure that people know that they are saved, know who they are saved by and know experientially what it means to be in Christ. Not just theoretically, but know it experientially. As a matter of fact, in the opening uh, 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 conversation of John, here it is, First John, that which was from the beginning, verse 1, chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, and which we have looked upon with our hands, and have handled concerning the word of life. We have handled it. The life was manifested, 
and we have seen and we have bear witness and we have declared that life to you. That is, we have shown it to you and we've told you about it, uh, which was with the father and which was manifested to us. That which we have seen and which we have heard, we declare to you that we also have fellowship with um, that we may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the father and his son, Jesus. And these things we write to you that you yet your joy may be full. John wants to invite us into an experiential, verified, tested knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would move from a place of confidence, knowing that we are saved by the Son and knowing that we have eternal life. I was standing up here reading. <laughs> I laugh at myself. I'm reminding you of a conversation. Man, you have a tendency to talk too fast. So then I just start talking quieter. <laughs> and I was like, that's not slower. That's just quieter. I'm working on it. Um, so as we get to first John chapter four, which is our text of choice, there's something that John says to the family, the local church family. If you if you do a cursory read of first John, there is family esque language that is layered in there. He says, hey, I write this to you, fathers. I write this to you, little children. I write this to you, uh, brothers. I write this to you, sisters. He, he writes these things and he uses these layers of family related language. So we know that this is a family oriented conversation. And then here's one of the things that he says as a part of of how we are to know the son of God and to continue in our belief of him. Listen to this. You've heard this passage before. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And by this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and now is already in the world. This is where we're going to spend our time in just these three verses. As we read them, there are several questions that you should be compelled to ask. Number one, what is this test? Number two, who are these false prophets? And number three, what is this antichrist? Right? I mean, we were given several action items. We were told to not believe every spirit, to test the spirits, then we're given somewhat of a test to use. And then we are told that the reason we want to use that is because there is an anti-Christian or an anti-Christ spirit that has been released into the world. When we hear the word anti-Christ, most of us get spooked by it. or We revert back to our, our Hollywood renditions because we think about this, again, this principal evil entity. But there's something else that we're going to unpack here today that I hope will help you understand what the Antichrist is in addition to the personification who is, yes, a real individual in Satan. But when we look at this passage, uh, the first thing that I want us to see is that it is the business of the believer to test the spirits. It is the business of the believer to test the spirits. But we need to understand exactly how we do that. And then what is the role of the family? Why is the family involved in this conversation? As I mentioned earlier, what is the test and then who are the spirits? Verse one tells us that we should. It informs us. It says, do not believe every spirit. It informs the believer that we should have a healthy distrust, a habitual discernment and a holy discontent with the current culture. Is that clear? 
In verse one, we are told that we should we should not believe every spirit. We should have a, a healthy distrust. And we should test every spirit. So we should have a habitual discernment. So this word is in a, it, it is this is in the uh, present active imperative, meaning uh, to test every spirit means that it is to be an ongoing activity. It's not something that happens in a singular moment and we go about our business. It is to be perpetual. It has no secession in mind if it is a present active. Right. I don't know what that is, but uh, imperative. Very bad at sign language. Um, so if you are a present active imperative to test the spirits, it should be a believer's habit. And it says to do it says do not believe every spirit. So we walk at a place of healthy distrust, a place of once again, the second point, uh, habitual discernment and also a place of holy discontent. In other words, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we are informed not to be perpetually disgruntled, angry and critical. That's not what the Bible just said. It said we should move at a place of what? Healthy distrust, habitual discernment and holy discontent. Let me help you. Let me help you understand how that kind of mindset already exists around things that we're committed to, even outside of the church. When a person wakes up in the morning and checks the weather, what they're doing is that they have a healthy sense of distrust that the conditions outside are exactly the same that they were yesterday. Doesn't mean that you hate weather. Doesn't mean that you're constantly critical of meteorologists. It doesn't mean that you're against rain and that you despise snow. It means that you have a healthy distrust for the consistency of weather. Not only do people check the weather on a regular basis, but they also prepare for that weather in its respective changes. They also move not only with a healthy distrust, but they also move with a habitual sense of discernment. By checking the weather, I know whether or not I need a scarf or whether I can wear a vest or a windbreaker. It's all about preparation. These are habits that already exist in the world. Whether you are saved or unsaved, people have a healthy distrust for things that, that are in co- uh, constant flux. Okay? So believers, don't feel bad about having a healthy distrust about your world because everybody does. The person who rides around town with a flare kit, jumper cables, and a, and a, and a five-ton jack in the back of their pickup doesn't mean that they, that they, uh, uh, that they're, that they're against anyone. Or that they're critique. It's just they're a person who has a healthy distrust for what it means to be stuck on the side of the road in the middle of the night changing a tire by yourself. Believers are called to operate with that kind of healthy distrust for changing conditions in their world. There are things that may leave us stranded if we are not effectively prepared. And so we're called to have a healthy distrust. But the same people who check weather. And they go out and they get flu vaccines. I'm one of them. Because what? You have a healthy distrust. We know that there are bacteria. We know that there are just things in the world that there are about. There's things that could negatively impact our lives and they are really there. Even if we can't see them, we know that they are there. Therefore, the world prepares flu vaccine in the industry that I work in. The Department of uh, gosh, Health and Human Services cuts a check every year for five billion dollars, one billion dollars each goes to each one of the major drug manufacturers just for the production of flu vaccine. Just for the production of flu vaccine, the nation has a healthy distrust for the for the for the uh, for flu. A five billion dollar distrust. Right. And so now so, what's interesting is not only is a healthy distrust, but then even if it's not as severe as the flu, notice how many of us 
proactively will take vitamin C at the slightest appearance of a sniffle. Or knowing that the, some kind of illness is taking place on our job. You know what? Two, two or three people are already out. I'm, I'm taking my vitamin C. I'm going to proactively do it. Why do I share these things with you? Because what I want you to see and understand is that for the believer to take a posture of healthy distrust, habitual discernment, and then to also pivot and be at a place of holy discontent is not some kind of behavior that makes us seem weird and outlandish. These kinds of behaviors already exist amongst many people in the world. It's, but what, but why, how and why do they exist? Not around spiritual things, but they are around unseen things. Does that make sense? So having a healthy distrust of unseen negative outcomes is not a behavior that we should be ashamed of. I'm pressing on this because I really feel believers uh, being backed into a corner in many cases when your unsaved peers and co-workers ask you why you do or do don't or not do certain things. And I see ourselves being ashamed to give answers for the hope that is within us and why we have chosen to live a lifestyle that is different. But you're no different from the person who's preparing for a 5K. And when the whole office is slamming donuts and meatballs and, and, and marinara sauce and cheesy dishes, that person has something out front that the rest of us may not be participating in, but we consider it to be an incredible feat of discipline that they've chosen not to eat it because they're going to go run on their lunch break. Do we not? Is it not honorable? So why is that not an honorable discipline amongst believers? That we have a race that we're running up ahead and we're in training and there's just certain things that we will not put in our body and certain things that we will not participate in because we are preparing for a race that others are not on. Stop being ashamed. Stop being ashamed and start insulating those conversations that you have with people who want to know why you take such a position. Start. Take the pivot. Be in a position of habitual discernment so you can say, I'm pretty sure you have some areas in your life. There is something that you're committed to at a high level that is driving your behaviors on a daily basis. Every person does. And when you do that, you're officially dropping seeds for the gospel. So believers are called to apply this test. Apply this test. We're told to do something else in verse 2. We are told in verse 2, by this, you will know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that doesn't is not of God. But let's hang out in verse 2 for just a second. Verse 2 informs us that the gospel, the gospel must be our litmus. It must be our litmus, a litmus test, right? But how do I get the gospel out of that? Do you notice how we're, we're compelled or we're instructed to test the spirits? It says that every spirit that is of God confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. That is the preamble of the gospel. That is the, the initial statement of the gospel, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. Well, every biblical conversation around Jesus Christ coming in the flesh is not just <laughs> he carved boats. And, and well, not carved boats, but he carved little figurines out of his carpentry kit. Jesus Christ coming in the flesh is with a view toward redemption. And the Bible says every spirit that does not conf that, that confesses it. The word confession in the Greek is 
Homo legeu. Homo to the same. Logeu to say. A spirit that agrees with God. You know, how does a person get saved according to Romans 10, 9? To believe in one's heart and to confess with the mouth. To agree with God on what he did on the cross is how a person gets saved. It's agreement. How do I get, how do I, how do I not only uh, uh, get saved by uh, agreement with God, but how do I gain forgiveness post-conversion during my season of sanctification? By confessing my sins. Homo legeu. I agree with God that I have screwed up. He's right. I'm wrong. And, and repentance and forgiveness are officially in play. So confession is not so in the in the in the secular judicial sense. Confession is just saying something. But confession biblically is agreeing with it. Does that make sense? Many may have seen this and thought, well, anybody can get up in a podium or in a pulpit and say that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. But we know that this is a common. This isn't just acknowledging that he was a historical figure. If we are agreeing with God that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, then we are simultaneously agreeing with why he came, which was that he was sent by the father. Well, why was he sent by the father? Because the father saw something that had to be fixed, namely sin, death and the devil. And so the spirits that are being tested are being tested for their degree or their level or just their agreement with the gospel. So the gospel must be the believers, the biblical family, the home based family and the church family. The gospel must be the litmus test by which we gauge where a given spirit comes from. Now, that sounds spooky. So we need to define who the spirits are. Because, I mean, many of us are probably saying to ourselves, why? <laughs> don't really talk to spirits. Therefore, they don't agree. You just hit the nail on the head. They are not in agreement with God because what he says is that this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus then says that I and the father are one. He is in me and I am in him. So a person who does not agree with who Christ is in flesh, that is, that he is God in flesh, is in fact not agreeing with God. They may be agreeing that God visited, but not agreeing with what the scriptures say about how and why he visited. If I could give you this analogy, group of uh, friends uh, at work. I've been to Las Vegas two times. I've been to, I've been to Las Vegas two times. Uh, the first time I went was I was it was on a connecting flight on my way to, I don't know, Beaverton, Oregon or some place incredibly boring. Um, but I remember it was my first time going to Vegas and I get off the plane from Atlanta and I'm, I was like, these people have slot machines in the airport. This thing is serious. I didn't want to. Play. I wasn't excited by the prospect of dropping coins. Right. I just I just never seen I've seen cheesesteaks in the airport. Like, you know, what I mean, I've seen, you know, I've seen lots of things that were distinctive. I've seen lassos and chaps and hats when I go to Houston, but I ain't never seen like, you know, slot machines. And so I go there, but I sit in the airport for an hour and then I catch my flight to my next destination. I go back to work. I say, like, hey, Rod, you've been to Vegas, huh? How do you like Vegas? And I'm sitting around. I'm listening to other people who've been to Vegas 
Because their idea of going to Vegas is being on the strip. Their idea of going to Vegas is being in the in the casinos, you know, seeing the shows and living up, you know, doing the food and all this kind of stuff. That's what people mean by have you been to Vegas? So I could stand in that room and agree with them that I've been to Vegas, knowing that I've never been to Vegas the way they meant it. Does that make sense? Now, the second time I went, we did go to Vegas. But my daughter was with me as well as my son and my wife. So you can be assured that there's nothing we did that we can't talk about here. It didn't have to stay there. We went to a magic show, if you want to know, uh, as well as uh, uh, that was where we dropped our bags, went to the Grand Canyon and the Hoover Dam. But I'd been to Vegas. I walked up down the strip. I saw the, took pictures in front of the fountain at the Bellagio. I actually went to Vegas. But notice the difference. We can agree on language, but still not have the same experience. You good on that? Thanks for the question. I've never been asked a question in the middle of preaching, but that, <laughs> but that works. <laughs> Love it. So then, the gospel is our litmus test. But what it demands for us, what it demands is that we know the gospel. How do I know that someone is not agreeing with the gospel if I don't have a fundamental knowledge of the gospel. If my knowledge has only been at the flashcard level, we talked about this in one of our initial messages and how we've learned how to uh, like like young children who are learning to sight read. We can recognize the gospel on paper. But have we really chewed it? Have we really digested it? And have we not? I'm not questioning anybody's belief. But there is a very high level of familiarity with the term gospel. Our teenagers, and I say this uh, with my daughter in the room because it was where I learned it. We had a group of uh, uh, young girls who were going through a discipleship process at our church. And I would sit down and I would talk to them uh, over and over again. And they had heard me use the word gospel so many times that they just figured, you know what, if we just say gospel to one of his next questions, it's probably right. And what I begin to recognize is like, you know what, we're raising people's familiarity with the terminology. But then when I begin to peel back layers and say, well, OK, well, what does the gospel mean? <laughs> Believe in God, you know, which is true. But we've got to increase our gospel literacy if we're going to be skilled with this test. Right. Because we're called to have a healthy distrust and a habitual sense of discernment. I love watching professionals. I love talking to professionals in any trade. I love hanging out with subject matter experts. Has anyone ever coughed around a doctor? It's not. I mean, they they don't just hear. <coughs> they go. Hmm. So wondering you, are you a smoker or blah, 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 blah. I mean, they just just from that because they're a subject matter expert. If you if you if you use certain terms around uh, an English teacher and you and you and you use the wrong word, they can immediately sniff it out. Why? Because they live in a place of what habitual discernment, because that's their subject matter expertise. But I'm telling you that because the Bible gives us an imperative, a present active imperative to test the spirits, we are called to be in a place of perpetual or habitual discernment which means that it is possible without a seminary degree to know the gospel well enough, just like a doctor can hear certain kinds of coughs, a mechanic can hear a car coming down the street and go, whoa, that person needs to, they're about to throw a rod. They can see white smoke coming out of tailpipe. For us, we just thought it was just a noisy, nasty car. But for the mechanic, that engine's gone. 
Why? Because that's their subject matter expertise. For us, it's just a frustrating computer. We need to press control, alternate, delete, unplug it and plug it back in. But to the IT professional, you got a virus, buddy. So we see subject matter expertise in every facet of life. Why not us? Why not us? Why not get familiar enough and practice enough with the gospel that we can truly obey the scriptures and have a habitual sense of discernment? And so it is our litmus test, but it is also our lens. It's not only how we test the quality of things in our world, but the scriptures say, by this you know the spirits, because they will confess, uh, whether they confess Christ has come in the flesh, this is of God, and every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God, And then it continues the conversation in verse three. It says, and this is the spirit of Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is already in the world. So the gospel not only allows the family to actively test certain content and whether or not it agrees with the conversation of God. But it is also a lens that allows us to look at the world and say, hmm. That looks like what we saw in the book of Joshua. That looks like the same scenario that broke out in Matthew. That looks like, huh, do you understand what I'm saying? It is both a litmus test and it is a lens through which we view our world. And it is an act of discipline that we would get there. There's another question that we need to ask. So we've talked about what the test is. But who then are the prophets? Let me just unpack for just a moment in verse 3 something that I hope you didn't miss. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist. And you have heard that it was coming and is already in the world. Notice that the test for the spirit of the Antichrist is a gospel agreement test. So this is not a this is not a play on words and this is not a game. But follow me carefully. If the test for the Antichrist is a gospel agreement test, then what I'm really looking for is anti-gospel sentiment in my world. So historically, we may have been going, well, I'm looking for the antichrist. Like we think we think demonic host, we think personality. But it says this is a spirit. This is an active campaign in the world that is anti-gospel in its sentiment, which means if the gospel is the target, then the gospel must be plenty powerful to shape people's understanding accurately to who God is. Satan does not want to be seen in person because the moment that he allows himself to be personally seen, he by default confirms faith in Christ. Does that make sense? If the quote unquote, if the world has said that the enemy is mythical and he makes himself clearly manifest, then his antipathies must also be equally as material and real. Therefore, the Antichrist campaign is highly subversive and it purposes to saturate the world through false prophets. Well, who are they? That was the third question that I believe I was supposed to answer. Who are false prophets? Are they the slick preachers with the glassy podiums promising dollars? Yes, but they are in plain view and obvious. Where else are they saturating anti-gospel sentiment. There are three places where I believe that the family needs to be incredibly focused. Number one, education. Number two, entertainment. And number three, 
media exchanges, media exchanges, whether you are in print media like a Time magazine, a Newsweek, pick your publication, whether you're on Internet media, whether it's social media, we need to be actively involved in testing the quality and content of all education, all entertainment and all media exchanges. This is where we apply the test. This is where we look at it through a gospel lens. This is where we look. Why do we want to look at these areas? These are these are the great stations and the platforms of the false prophets. These people may not wear the uh, uh, again, the badge of being a false prophet, because that's a very dubious distinction. But I want you to look at what's happening in the education world. It is obvious and clear that both in cosmology, the story of creation, anthropology, the story of human origin and human history, that there is a overt, direct, committed Committed plan to remove God from the conversation. I will never forget Miss Russell, my ninth grade history teacher, who told me very clearly and explicitly that the job of the historian, she was my history teacher, the job of the historian is to explain human history without any dependence or deferral to the existence of a higher power. Period. She said that is her job. She's committed to it. There are seven great worldview questions that you want to get familiar with. Boy, I hope I can remember because I don't have them written down. Number one, what is ultimate reality? In other words, how do you explain what is ultimately true? Number two, what is the nature of humanity and the natural world around it? Number three, what is a human being? Number four, what happens after death? Number five, how do we know anything Number six, what is the value of human history? And here it is, number seven, I can't remember. Seven worldview questions. So objective morality, the construction of a human being, the nature of the natural world, how do we know anything? And did I mention objective morality already? It'll come to me later in the conversation. Everyone has an answer to the seven worldview questions, even if they've never formally articulated them or written them down for an essay. But everyone either consciously or unconsciously has an answer. Everyone consciously or unconsciously has an answer. And so one of the great platforms or the three great platforms where worldview is constantly being shaped, how we view the world, the lens through which we view reality, the platforms where worldview are being constantly shaped are education, entertainment and media exchanges. Let me explain how. Therefore, the anti-Christian thought or anti-gospel thought is very pervasive in education. Cosmology, as I mentioned before, desires to remove God from the conversation. Can we explain our exi the existence of our world without dependence upon God? Can we put together a, uh, a sound explanation of our existence, anthropology as human beings, the nature of a human being, right? One of the worldview questions. How did we get here? Where did we come from? And what gives us our value, our identity and purpose? Remember that from, from the previous message? Right. How can we how can we build can we build an education system that does not depend upon God for anthropology? And can we build an education system that does not depend upon God in history? Number two, when it comes to entertainment. Now, number one, we weren't uh, that didn't catch anybody by surprise, because we know that when we look at, you know, secular education, many of us may have one. We already know that those those motifs are, are very pervasive and we're constantly testing that. You don't even have to test it. You just know that it's absent of godliness and definitely absent of gospel. But then number two, entertainment, it's more subtle. 
Entertainment often offers a repudiation of objective standards. It's a repudiation of objective standards. Watch any of your favorite shows. And I'm not saying slam the TV off, you know, and, and bust the remote against the wall because you, you, you've got an HGTV. That's, you know, you're blowing some money. Um, just choose a nicer program or, or guard your heart, whatever. I'm going to tell you how to do it, but I'm just going to tell you what to look for, all right? Repudiation of objective moral standards. In entertainment, there is an incessant desire to reduce a God consciousness to revise the self-conscious, like who, what do I think of myself, and to rebrand the world conscious. The spirit, the soul, and the body are under constant barrage of ideas. The spirit, which is the God, my God conscience, my soul, which is my self-conscious, who I believe myself and understand myself to be, and my world conscience, how I con- come into contact with my physical world. All three of these in my entertainment life are under constant barrage of fresh and new ideas. And I'm and I should be regularly submitting myself or submerging myself in the gospel so that I'm readily aware of. Oh, look at this idea that's looking to looking to permeate me. But it's looking to saturate my conscience. The third area, media exchanges, media exchanges specialize in replacing Truth with just information. Replacing truth with information. In other words, information can be verifiably correct, but still not be truth. Rod, have you been to Vegas? Yes. That is verifiably and materially correct. But I know exactly what my audience is asking. Have you experienced it in the way that we're talking about? So even though I am not, I am, back up, even though I am telling the truth as one would suggest on a true or false test, I am lying as it applies to the character. And media exchanges regularly blur the distinction between factually verifiable information an actual truthful presentation. And I've never seen a season in our national conscience that is more inundated with that right now. And I want you to understand that the anti-Christian spirit in our world, that the anti-gospel spirit in our world isn't trying to support or oppose any given news network but to dull the human conscience for the difference between Bible information and gospel truth. Have you noticed that when you go out to share the gospel, that the that people in response to gospel truth want to point to biblical errors? They want to talk about incongruencies in information as opposed to dealing with truth. Have you noticed Therefore, so you, you, you see that, this, that this, this play on information versus truth isn't just about 
uh, building a better Facebook. It isn't just about the way news media. I mean, that may be the individual sitting behind the desk and publishing the articles. They, unbeknownst to them, are just reporting it as they see it or, 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 or presenting it in order to get their ratings. But what the Antichrist is doing is creating a, a dulling of the conscience so that the gospel has no place to hang itself on the contemporary mind. So that when the gospel is presented and you say, do you believe that God loves you? A person can say, yes. Do you believe that he um, died for your sins? Yeah. And be true, but not necessarily be truthful. Agreement with the facts of the gospel, but not be aligned with the truth of God's redemptive plan. Do you see how that can happen? So then, the Christian family is called to operate at its centerpiece with its, with its, a part of its core value proposition is an understanding of the gospel, constantly immersing itself in a fresh appreciation of the gospel, knowing that our job is to both deploy children into the future. I mean, Psalm 127, right? Uh, uh, let's let's read it together. I, I was I was about to do a number on it, but I probably would mess it up. I want you to hear this as I get ready to move to my seat, possibly unless another illustration comes into view. I had to protect myself from potentially losing integrity if I keep going, but I, I'm, I promise I'm sitting down. I want you to hear this. Psalm 127. We're all familiar with it, but I wanted us to walk it out. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For... So he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord and the fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them that they shall not be ashamed, but shall speak truth with their enemies in the gate. The Bible typifies our children as arrows. That we have an opportunity to launch. Now, in warfare, arrows play a role. It reaches a place in the enemy where I can't go lest I lose my life. I can't have warfare that closely. Our children... Our young people, regardless of how young they are, when we deploy them, they are officially reaching a generation with which we will have no reach, no relevance. We will be relegated as old men and women. But we are building a value proposition at our dinner table, in our cars on the way to school, in the colleges we send them to, in the way that we train them in the gospel. We are building a resolve in them that allows them to penetrate for Christ another generation that we cannot reach. That's how the family plays a critical role 
in shaping the national conscience. May the days of us just trying to raise kids with robust careers, great degrees, better cars, bigger bank accounts, and handsome spouses, may those days not be over, but may they pale in comparison to the fact that I've got an arrow that I'm getting ready to launch into another generation. And when that arrow reaches, I want it to have maximum impact because I have soaked it in the gospel. Those that leave our, leave our tables, leave our families, and go on to do life as they, as they do them, they will be responsible for taking this beautiful, young, and creative minds and crafting gospel, gospel-centered ideas in the veneer of their respective technologies and through the vehicles that they will, they will craft and create. We don't have to do that. They'll do that. Hopefully I, hopefully I am doing that for my dad. I remember uh, as I close, <laughs> for real, I remember um, my dad <clears throat> uh, incessantly and constantly uh, praying for me uh, growing up. He did not pray for a preacher. He, uh, he was not one himself. He just loved the Lord, and he loved to pray, and he loved to read, and he loved to study day and night. As a matter of fact, my, uh, he was watching the kids. He was over at the house one day, and my son goes, oh, my goodness. I was like, what's going on? He was like, Grandpa is on that Psalm 1. And I was like, what are you talking about? Because he just sat at the kitchen table just constantly, incessantly, just page after page. Just pray. That's what he does. Never told me to do it. <clears throat> never, never said, this is vitally important and you must model it. But it was part of our show and tell. I saw it and I was like, that's got to be important. Got to be important. Uh, my dad is not a, uh, not a speaker at all. I mean, I mean, grammar is super country and ultra awful. Right. But then you launch a son who talks way too much, too fast, can say words that he doesn't even know what they mean. And other folks are like, man, that's awesome. But that from a from a from a from a pops who just, you know, probably struggles to put together a standard English sentence. And so. We ought to relish what God is doing in us as families. Not necessarily making replicas, not necessarily, uh, I mean, you know, name your kids first, second, third, and, and fourth, do that. But understand that, there, but that if you will in, in saturate them, indoctrinate them with the gospel, make them gospel literate, not just know it on flashcards, but make them gospel literate. Make yourselves gospel literate. We'll be more than prepared to tackle a time and a place that seems to be desperately wicked and evil. The Lord is gracious. The Lord, remember has given the church confidence that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So we know that where we're going, we win. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, he's already defeated sin, death, and the devil. So we know that when it comes to these ultimate causes, we win. We know that the power 
of God unto salvation is intrinsic within the gospel itself. So even amid gross incompetence, being able to explain it, that the gospel itself will not return to the Lord void. Does that make sense? So the Lord has built into the program all these guarantees and all these confidences and has invited us to participate through our discipline and obedience. So we never have to look in the mirror and say, man, I blew that. I, 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 I never I, I didn't say it right. I didn't say it well as Rod. And I can't remember his five points. And the last time I, I can't remember the seven worldview questions, blah, blah, blah. That's not your job. Your job is to is to agree with God in obedience. You and I were responsible for showing. We're responsible for sharing. The Holy Spirit is responsible for shaping. Will we obey and do our part? Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, um, we thank you. We thank you that no part of your plan is contingent upon the faithfulness of a human being. You told the patriarchs of old, that when you could swear by no greater, you swore by yourself because you even knew that even the great spiritual superheroes of the past would drop the ball on occasion. You didn't make the solidity, the, the solidification of covenant, the solidarity of covenant predicated on David's ability to be faithful, Solomon's ability to stay out of the groves. You didn't make it contingent on uh, Moses continued obedience. You didn't make it contingent on Israel's appetite to follow you no matter what and to love you with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength. You didn't make the human being ever a contingency, but you invited us to lovingly participate and to see your glory unfold. You didn't give us a hall pass for sin or a license to be lackadaisical, but Lord, you thought of everything. What an enduring example of real wisdom and omniscience and your, just your all-knowingness. You've thought of everything. And then you bring in your grace, O oh God, where, where your strength is made perfect even in our weakness. So even when we try our hardest and, man, we are as faithful as we could possibly muster, and that comes up short, you bring in grace. You've thought of everything. And because, Lord God, you've thought of everything, we trust you with our lives we trust you with the most difficult conversations that we'll be faced with when trying to penetrate this world with the gospel. We trust you, oh God, when that person who looks to be infinitely more intelligent than us challenges our position. We trust you even in our failure. We trust you even in our stuttering. We trust you, Lord God, even just even in our best and our worst efforts. We trust you because we want to see your work in our world. We trust you with our families, oh God. We don't care how much traditional family values begin to break down. We trust you. We, Lord God, we don't care how often we be called, we are called antiquated. We trust you. Allow these affirmations of trust to be manifest in our daily behaviors. We lift up, Lord God, our families, all ages, all generations, whether they can even understand a fraction of this message or not. We beg your blessing on our children, on our children's children. We beg your blessing, Lord God, on us as we seek to shape them. 
and to launch them. We beg your blessing on the grandmothers and the grandfathers, the aunts, the uncles, the adoptive parents, stepmoms, in-laws, Lord God, whatever the, the, the labels are, we beg your blessing on every life that's in this room to whatever extent that they can participate, Lord God, in the solidarity of the biblical family, congregationally or in the nuclear family that sits at home. We beg your blessing, O oh God, that it would function according to, Lord God, your desire and your delight. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.